all of the saints are echoing the importance of identity and of knowing who you are because you cannot do this work if you have not done the work of of the inner space hey jr hey doug good to see you how are you doing today yeah, uh, today I'm actually doing pretty well. Uh, yesterday, uh, I, I just was feeling pretty lonely. Huh? Huh? Tell, tell. Uh, what do you, we think was the source of that loneliness? Yeah, I think for me, it's it's this feeling of always being on. Huh. Um, you know, my sense was uh, had a really busy weekend. Uh, in fact, our our worship leader uh, was able to lead the first two songs, and then we had a break, and he had to run because he was sick. And so then I had to step in, learn like three songs on the fly and try to make all that work in the midst of the insanity that ensues on a Sunday (laughs) that we all know ensues. Uh, But I I think with that- Fill in emergency worship leader. Right. It's not quite as big as fill in emergency. Can you please pray for Thanksgiving meal? But uh, because you're a pastor, (laughs) um, but yeah. And I think too, even realizing the last few weeks, I just feel like I've spent a little bit more time with people that have greater need. Mm. And uh, I think the question that kind of popped in my head is like, who are the, you know, Lord, who are the people that are listening to my needs? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And it was good because yesterday I was able to have a conversation with a friend and I feel like that kind of bumped things up, but it made me think about loneliness in ministry. Uh, It's, it's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hate to break it to you, Doug, but you have a case of the normals. The normals. In uh, fact, I, I've never met a pastor who <laughs> at some point didn't tell me that he or she felt lonely, mm-hmm. either long-term or within spaces. I mean, I think it's human, but I think it's accentuated in the life of pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking about this for quite some time, but I'm curious, Doug, why do you think loneliness is so uh, prevalent and rampant in the life of a pastor? Yeah, I... <sighs> I think much of it comes down to um, just the fact that the way that our vocation is structured is one in which we we are always when we're in front of people we're always out outputting and outpouring and pouring mm. into others mm. and I think that that coupled with um, even this I wonder if there's like a fear of really being known mm. by mm. people because it's like I'm known as a pastor and so we we buy into this lie of like, that means that I sit on this pedestal away from people. Yeah. You have the red phone to God's desk. Exactly. You're more spiritual. God listens to your prayers more than mine. Hey pastor, could you pray for this? You know, I could, but so could you. So could you. (laughs) It's really weird. I know. Um, but I think, I think with that, like even watching some of the, some of the, the failures that I've noticed within ministry over the, over my life in ministry, Mm. um, thinking through, you know, good friends that, that have fallen to affairs and Mm. people, who have just like blown up their ministry. I mean, I, I had a friend of mine who 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 got addicted to to cocaine as mm, a pastor. Wow. And it's one of those things where you're like, what happened? And when you really start to dig into it, it's they were lonely. Yeah. There was this deep sense of, you know, I'm caring for all these different people, but who's caring for me? And I think one of those, one of those important things to do is to actually have friends and 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 yeah. people that uh, for me, it's, it's playing hockey, right? I have, yeah. you know, I play hockey with 15 guys. Uh, only two or three of them know 
fully what I do in terms mm. of, and I don't keep that from them, but it's, that's just never brought up in the conversation. Uh, it's more like, Hey man, uh, you totally blew that, you know, that breakaway, you should have done this or should have done that. But I feel like it's just nice to have places of play yeah, and where I'm not needed good. as a pastor, but I get to yeah. be a pastor there too. And so it's still part of who I am. And I mean, you'd probably, I mean, people would probably laugh. It's like, I, I tell people sometimes like renew my, my church pays me to be a pastor of a community. And that's my day job. But my night job is I, I pastor a, a group of ragtag hockey players. Yeah, that's and, great. And I feel like, but what's so cool is, I mean, you know, my wife and I are invited to housewarming parties and to birthday parties and to different things like that in these communities where we just get to show up and be Doug and Mayor yeah. instead of showing up and be Pastor Doug and yeah. Pastor Mayor. And, and I'm grateful. I, I serve a community that also gives me the space to be a person, yeah. which is really good. But yeah. but my my sense is not not every pastor listening has that that freedom to talk about loneliness from the pulpit or talk about struggles and different things yeah. like that. And sometimes that's the pressure of the congregation saying yes. like, I remember one time uh, I, I talked with a pastor who had enough vulnerability to appropriately share uh, some areas of loneliness in his own life from wow. the pulpit. And I was so grateful to hear that, but he told me something really, really discouraging later. He said, he said that an older gentleman pulled him aside later and said, look, pastor, we know you're a person. But um, when you're in the pulpit, just help us pretend that you're just our pastor. Mm. And it really crushed him because he just said, man, I, I guess I really can't be honest. Yeah. And so some of that loneliness comes out and um, that, that, can be, that can be difficult. I mean, every pastor needs people who don't need them. And it's hard to find that because it most is. people that want to approach us have a need and right. we want to help meet that need. And so people that just aren't impressed by the fact that we're pastors, yeah, you know, your hockey team, you yeah. know, and I need spaces like that too, where they just treat me as a, as a person. Um, I was telling you earlier that one of the funniest tweets I saw last year was somebody said, there are a lot of miracles in the gospels, but why is it that no one ever talks about the miracle that Jesus had 12 close friends in his mid thirties? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that. There is so much truth to that. You know? yeah. And, uh, and I think for, uh, talking to the male pastors for a moment, like male friendships are hard to begin with they are. in our culture. And then on top of that, male pastors having friends becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I hear pastors talk about close friends that they have, um, I tell them like, that's great. That is yeah. rare. Thank yeah. God for that. And, um, and because Henry Nowen said that um, the two hazards of uh, ministry are personal loneliness, number one, and number two, pastoral or vocational loneliness. Yeah. And it's like, well, thanks, Henry. Like that yeah. isn't really yeah. encouraging, but so it's glad true. you're a pastor, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. And certainly yeah. we need Jesus to fill that and be our friend, but we also need human friends, the yeah. tangible relational gifts of, of people around. And, and, and I have friends too, but uh, my closest friends are several hours away or a plane ride away. And yeah. sometimes that can be really hard mm -hmm. because I've often said, Lord, I thank you for these friends around the world and around the country. I just wish they lived within like my County, <laughs> you know? Yes. And, uh, but you've been a good friend yeah. in this, um, to me over the years and, and others as well. But, but, uh, it's hard. It's hard to find. It's hard to find good friends. It really is. And I think sometimes just that, you know, pastor fill in the blank, you know, pastor Doug or pastor Jr. or pastor mm. this, it's like that, that term almost becomes like the mm. scarlet a of, you know, um, 
it's everyone else can dump on you, but the minute you have a crisis or you have something, it's like, and I think that's what I really appreciate about the the ministry of Kairos partnerships is it's, mm. you, you have this chance to pastor pastors. And yeah. like, I know that's different than the loneliness conversation, but I feel like that has a well, lot it's to similar. do yeah. with it. It's, you know, pastors need pastors. And that idea of a shepherd is one who walks with folks, mm. one who, you know, pours oil on when, when their fleas are hanging out and yeah. doing all these nasty things and in, inside the the head of, of the sheep. And, um, it's, it's one who can just laugh together. And I think yeah. too, that it's like a good, healthy friendship is someone that I can, I can be me huh. at with, you know, with, and I can also laugh with, and I can cry with, and I can have these vulnerable spaces of just, mm talking about absolutely nothing, like having Seinfeld moments of talking about nothing and and everything. It's, it's just nice to know that there are, you know, I I think God designed us to be in relationship with others. And that doesn't just mean a spouse. It means to have deep friendships as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that space is so crucial. Um, And I think most pastors know we need it, yeah. but don't always know where to find it or yeah. where to go for it. And so, and I think there's a reason why a lot of pastors, their closest friends are other pastors, because right. we just, there's just a kinship of just knowing, hey, what we do is just a little bit bizarre. Yeah. It's different. We don't sell insurance. We don't, we're not teachers. And those are all good professions, but um, it's just kind of a weird animal over here being uh, a vocational pastor. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really the, the big question of just sitting with that I've been sitting with today is like, so how do I continue to develop healthy friendships with other people? Mm. And I don't have answers with that fully, but yeah, just yeah. think that's an important question to be thinking with. Yeah. You, you and I have a mutual friend. I'm honestly not going to say their name here yeah. and they're great people and uh, this family, but I, I remember he called me and he said, Hey, let's hang out. And I remember being so honored Yeah, that we were just going to go grab a beer and yeah. I, I thinking, great. I just totally need a space. Yeah. No agenda. Let your hair down. This is awesome. And so I was so excited. We grabbed wings uh, and a beer and when we sat down. He said, Hey, yeah, what I really wanted to talk to you about was, and it was just a two hour pastoral meeting. And I, mm. I wasn't, I was so grateful. My friend trusted me, but in that moment I was, I, I was so excited someone had invited me, not for what I could do for them, or yeah. so I thought, but what, <laughs> just just to be me. Yeah. And uh, and they they are so great. And in many ways, this person has has loved you and I both very yes. well in this, which is awesome. But um, but I remember feeling grieved of just going like I almost feel like emotionally and mentally I need to just like walk out and like think about putting my, my pastor hat back on uh-huh. and walking back in yeah. because I, I was just looking forward to being a JR time, not yeah. a pastor time. Yeah. And so just see, we need those spaces to just hang out and, and uh, just where we can say, you know what, this is a pastoral free, pastoral conversation free zone tonight. Yeah. I, I just, I just need space to just yeah. be and hang yeah. out yeah. tonight. Here's uh I think it was about three months ago. We had a couple, take us out, take my wife and I out for dinner. And we sat down and, uh, and the wife said, uh, you don't have to be a pastor tonight. Uh, and I started crying. Wow. I mean, it was like wow. one of these moments of, of what I, I just, I was so huh. surprised, grateful oh, and surprised in that. And I think too, like even, even 
for just people who recognize the gift of, of just creating a safe place for your pastor. Mm. Like that'd be one of those things. If I could preach a sermon to every other church <laughs> in the world and not, you know, my church is, I feel like we're, we're growing in that, but if I could, if, if we could all trade churches and preach, it would yeah. be this, be a safe place for your pastor. Wow. Wow. And I feel like we would see the loneliest, the loneliness epidemic would begin to melt away. Wow. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Jared Mackey has been in ministry for over 20 years and was part of the original iteration of a church called The Next Level, or TNL, in Denver, Colorado. Jared is now the pastor of what is now named the Sacred Grace in Denver. He's a man of profound wisdom, and he's had his own share of wounds, which he has stewarded well. He walks with a limp as a pastor in the best sense of the word. In many ways, pastors from Denver over the last several years have seen Jared and only a select few pastors as the gatekeepers or the spiritual fathers of the city, and he builds into them using that influence for good to see the city flourish. He has a business card, and it just simply reads three things, concierge, cocktails, and clergy. And as I've known Jared, that best describes him. He calls himself a kingdom concierge. Concierge, the original French word, meant the keeper of the candles, and it originally turned into the keeper of the keys, as in prisons and public buildings and places of lodging. And he sees himself as a concierge for the kingdom, just like the psalmist wrote in the words, it is a good thing to be a doorman in the house of God. But he also enjoys cocktails. He enjoys drinking them, as I've enjoyed several myself with him. But he also enjoys making them for friends as well. But he's also a member of the clergy. It's not what he said he would imagine he would be doing with the last two decades of his life. But it's what he's done. And the faith community that he served and led over the years is on the far fringe of what many people might consider a church. But these people have allowed him to grow into being a pastor. He, he said it's it's difficult at times to state at all uh, what it is that a clergy member of the clergy does, but in a few words, he described it as being on a journey of divine humor, severe mercy, and endless grace. Enjoy this conversation with our friend, Jared Mackey. Well, Jared, thanks again for uh, being with us here on the podcast, Monday Morning Pastor. We I know your story... You've been through quite the roller coaster ride in ministry from the next level, TNL back in the day in Denver, to now the Sacred Grace. Tell everybody a little bit about your story. Probably the easiest way to explain it is I had a, a very early and rapid rise kind of to ascent. Um, and one of the things that I've come to recognize is a lot of people get to know you on the way up you get to know yourself pretty well on the way down. Mm. Uh, but as far as on the way up went, we started. And when I say we, I was about as responsible for TNL starting as Tang was for the, uh, early, um, astronauts, uh, on the moon. (laughs) (laughs) But nonetheless, uh, I was, uh, fortunate to have two great friends who are incredibly talented, who started this ministry in 1993 called TNL. Um, the, the acronym itself started by calling Tuesday Night Live. Uh, there was this little show called Saturday Night Live. And uh, the Heard best that. that we thought we could do is uh, copy culture at that point. Uh, <laughs> borrowing some of uh, our friend Andy Crouch's language there. So, yes. so we started a Tuesday night uh, college kind of study. And 
by the summer of 93, we kept meeting. It quickly was understood that this wasn't just a collegiate thing. Uh, by probably what was it 95, Douglas Copeland had written his book, Generation X. We were started, we called it Generation X Ministry. Um, and pretty, pretty much like from 93 till probably like 99, 2000, we were labeled uh, Gen X Ministry, a postmodern ministry. Like all the terms kept changing. Uh, but what was happening was people just kept showing up mm. and they showed up in the hundreds and then eventually in the thousands. And so we were being flown around to conferences to explain all of the things that we were experts on at 20 years old. And, <laughs> um, and honestly, it was, it was uh, thrilling and engaging and exciting uh, until it wasn't. Mm. And um, the kind of the first crash I would say happened in 2001 uh, about six months after I had gotten married, the founding pastor resigned. And then the kind of the easiest way to tell the story is for the next 11 years, we would go through either a change of location or a change in senior staff person for mm. 11 years in a row. Wow. So in a lot of ways, it was, we just never left the storm. Mm. And, and when people ask, you know, how did you take a church of a couple thousand people to a church of under a hundred people? It was like, well, you know, if you want to run a small experiment, just change locations or change senior <laughs> staff every year for 11 years and see if you have anybody left. Because mm. really, I think at the end of that whole season, I would say it was simply the grace and mercy of God that anybody stuck with us mm. and or had had kind of joined on with us somewhere during that ride. So, so yeah, kind of meteoric ride and then kind of long descent. And the last kind of of those crashes would have been in 2013. And uh, we had put together a leadership team that wasn't working. Uh, the, the team dynamics were not working. Our elders had come to the decision that we were going to let one of the pastoral team go. Mm. I came home from that elders meeting and um, my wife told me that our marriage uh, was ending. And wow. so that year of 2013 was kind of, it felt like the final disillusion of not only the church that we had created, but the life that I had kind of hoped for created. And, um, yeah, that was kind of the, I would say Joseph in the pit, wow. in the well, in the back of the donkey down to Egypt. Uh, that was kind of the end of it. So God, again, in his mercy allows things to somewhat come out of the ashes and redemption comes after burial. And, um, 2015, I ended up in a learning community with some dear friends, uh, up in New York, uh, led by John Tyson with Trinity Grace and began to think about new ways that church could take new expressions. And somewhere in the midst of all of uh, the heartbreak over those years, we and I, I would say, I was kind of re-inspired about what the church could be from the church's family and, and this idea of like a parish model. And so we launched the Sacred Grace in 2015. Uh, TNL was the root of that. And so we made the decision in 2015 to not close TNL, but to transition the leadership of TNL to a great guy named Phil Owen, who had been attending mm. TNL. He started attending TNL when he was 15 as a kid in high school, and mm. he has his own really beautiful faith journey and hard journey. Uh, but Phil took over the leadership of TNL. Uh, we planted our first parish church with the leadership of Nathan Hoag in Inglewood, and then my job moved to a lead pastor over a family of churches. Mm. And so 2015 was a fun year. And God has been gracious over the last couple of years. Um, this last year, 2018, to kind of kind of bring the story all the way up to this calendar year, 
TNL celebrated 25 years wow. of meeting on Tuesday nights. Wow. And as one of the pastors who was in the room that night, whose story was deeply influenced and impacted, uh, nine out of the 11 pastors who had pastored at TNL were there for the 25th wow. anniversary. How cool. cool. And it was, it was this really like beautiful, and I'm going to use the word memorial service because in so many ways it did feel like a funeral, uh, but mm. like the best case scenario, a funeral about saying like what was or what had been, had been really important to so many of us. And mm. we were all just super thankful to have been a part of it. And yet there was this kind of uh, that, that memorial, like saying like the past is behind us now. And then, uh, you know, not that we have a whole lot of Jewish tradition in our community, but this idea of like holding Shiva, you know, kind of mm. for like the last three months mm. of 2018, I think we kind of waited to see what God would have next for TNL. And 2019 has just been a really beautiful beginning as Phil has re-architected some of the liturgy and, and really allowed TNL to become what it is now, which is a, it's a family church. Uh, the people who choose to go to church on a Tuesday night at 630. Hmm. So what started off as this, you know, Gen X millennial, excuse me, not millennial, uh, Gen X uh, postmodern thing has now become this family church of, of people. Over 50% of the people now at TNL have been there over 15 years. Wow. And, uh, wow. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fun story to be a part of. That's cool. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. I, I don't know if I've even ever articulated this. Maybe I've shared it long ago I, and you and I have known each other for years, but when I was down the road an hour South uh, of Denver doing ministry, even before that, it was in the year of 2001 where I, everyone said, you got to visit TNL. You got to go up and visit. And so we took a group of people up with us. We visited. And if I remember right, and I think I met you in the hallway or um, so we had some interaction, either either the, the, the pastor, the senior pastor had just resigned the week prior or was going to in the coming week. I can't remember, but mm-hmm. you basically pulled me aside and said quietly, like, the, the doors just are just going to get blown off this place. And so it's just interesting that that's when I first met you um, yeah. after the rise, almost at the apex. And, right. uh, and yet, as I described to, to Doug, you have stewarded the downward descent very well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons I respect you so much. And one of the reasons why your name came up as saying, we got to get Jared on here. Um, you know, Looking back, I mean, this 20 years, there's a lot of wisdom. That's one of the things I love about you and, and our friendship. Um, but what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started 20 years ago? <laughs> well, there's a few remarks that we should probably not air publicly. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I thought about ministry when we started it was that the, the only two things that you could be were good or lucky. Hmm. And I worked with some, some really good dynamic, super talented people. Hmm. And I felt like I was on the lucky kind of side of that. Hmm. And I think what I've come to believe is maybe what I wish I would have known earlier is that being in ministry is going to require a significant amount of work, but the work is going to have more to do with you and your ability to be differentiated and to know yourself. And most of the work I think you can learn, but the the work that nobody else can do for you. And it didn't matter if you were super talented or like me, super lucky to just kind of get caught up into this thing. 
everybody was going to have to do the work of knowing themselves. Everybody was going to have to work, do the work of, of differentiating mm. who they were from what this was. So uh, I, I mentioned John Tyson earlier. John uh, gave a talk a couple of years ago that continues to reverberate. And the name of the, the title of the talk was Results May Vary. Mm. And mm. I, I believe John says something about that in his new book, The Burden is Light. But he talks about that it's really important to be cautious about measuring results because if we actually look in scripture about different ministries that different people had, yeah. there is no direct correlation or causation between who the person is and the ministry that they are a part of or lead. Mm. And so I, I'm sure somebody wise was talking and I was not listening early in my ministry. I don't mm. think that it was not said. I just don't think I heard mm. that result that results may vary. What's important, Jared, is that you do your work, that you know yourself. Uh, as St. Augustine says, you know, uh, let, let me know myself that I may know thee. Mm. And, and I feel like that that's if there's one thing that I've learned over, you know, the 25, almost 26 years now of ministry, it has been this sense of all of the saints are echoing the importance of identity and of knowing who you are, because you cannot do this work if you have not done the work of, of the inner space. Mm. Mm. That's one of the things again, that I've so appreciated about you is the inner work that you've done through a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds, not just the downward trajectory of TNL, but as you mentioned, your marriage, you and I have had conversations about, um, singleness and I've had conversations, which I've been so grateful that you've welcomed me into those sacredly vulnerable conversations together. Mm-hmm. You talked about in those conversations about what it's like to be single and a pastor. And I'd love for you to tease that out a little bit here with everybody on the podcast of how does that mm-hmm. shape you as a single male who is pastoring? Well, first of all, let me say thank you uh, for the kitchen bowls. I remember you and I were on a phone call a couple weeks after uh, my wife had um, moved out. Mm. And you were consistently asking great questions. But one of your questions is, what do you need today? And and I think I said, I need some fill-in explicative here bowls. (laughs) And it was... uh, like within the week that a gift card showed up in the mail to go buy some bowls, Mm. uh, you know, for the kitchen. So thank you for being Mm. a friend Mm. in a a difficult season, JR. Mm. You're welcome. You're welcome. So to answer the questions, what is it like to be single and a pastor? I think you have to kind of tease that apart a little bit because, um, there's this whole tradition that maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Catholic church. And, uh, Majority of their leaders are single, which has its um, liabilities, as we've seen. But also, it's not abnormal for people to be single and leaders of faith communities. Within the evangelical movement, if I was to ask you, like, if you could name me the top three single evangelical leaders in America right now, you would say... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's, and that's kind of how the conversation goes, right? So I, I am not an, an anomaly in the big family, but mm-hmm. I am a little bit of an anomaly in our family. Yeah. And so 
So I, I, you know, I've told people, I I don't think it's that odd that I'm single and a pastor, except for that. I happen to be a pastor of a particular tradition Mm. that doesn't have a lot of single folk. Mm. Um, The other piece is how I became single, you know, uh, being married for 13 years, um, I have a deep appreciation and a high value of marriage and, and, you know, probably doing weddings and and funerals is, is one of the greatest gifts of, of this occupation. But, Mm. um, I think the status somewhere around about 50% of people in Denver, uh, their marriages end. Mm. Uh, And and I think that that's probably even close to a nationwide statistic, you know, about the divorce rates around 50%. So I am, nobody notices that I'm divorced in Denver, Mm. but I'm probably about, I don't know, 1% uh, of, Mm. of pastors whose marriages have ended Mm. and specifically pastors whose marriages have ended, whose career did not end immediately as soon as their marriage ended Mm, because for some reason we're okay with pastors being married or being remarried, but kind of that in-between state is really tricky for churches Mm. to navigate. And I, I understand that. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions about how and, and, that matter. They matter a lot, but so here I am, a single white male that I'll be honest, the single white male has a lot of privilege and and a lot Mm. of power in a lot of contexts but I would also offer that the single male over 40 may be one of the most suspect people currently in our culture. Uh, Because people kind of ask like, what's wrong with you? Right. If you're over 40 and single, you know, and Mm. and they don't maybe know all the stories. So, Mm. so I find myself trying to navigate and getting to navigate some, some unique conversations. Um, Valentine's Day, lovely holiday that it is this week. <laughs> I uh, was reminded of Paul's words in Corinthians where he says, God, not your marital status defines you. Yeah, And that is the opportunity I think that I get to say and people believe maybe at a different level. Mm. Um, I would offer that as the guy who was married for 13 years, I did not often think about what I was saying or how it was landing to 50% of the room that wow. was not yet or would never be married. Mm. Wow. And now I consistently think about how I lead and teach and the environments that we create um, for the number of people who are not in uh, marriages. Jesus says, Hey, some people are going to be single uh, because they kind of life came at them that way. Some people are going to be single because, you know, the hands of man or, you know, the situations that people put them in. And then he's like, some people are just going to be single because of the sake of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things I, I try to be really cautious with around people in their marital status is to not assume that it is either a holy uh, intent of their singleness or on the other end that, that they're just longing to be married and they're just like, you know, struggling or whatever the term would be there with their marital status. And, and yeah, so I, I've uh, kind of gone to kind of an Ignatian practice of Ignatian indifference uh, regarding my marital status. I'm like, well, I'm satisfied. I'm content. Yeah. Um, 
single, fine. If I was to get remarried at some point down the road, that would be fine. Uh, but for the time being, uh, I really do feel like that most days I live into this family of God where I, I am, am really content with the, the place that I am and, and where I am right now. So, mm-hmm. and, and uh, let me be a little bit more clear on that. There is a, a, a nine-year-old daughter in my life mm-hmm. who is in, uh, an incredibly important factor in that decision about yeah. my relational status. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, she gets high priority uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Valentine's Day, and it just made me think of something. Rich Velotis in New York City, you know, pastor there, he said, Valentine's Day is always this really good day for us to examine our often deficient theology of singleness. And yet he reminded us that Jesus was single and lived the fullest human life imaginable. So just, uh, yeah, just reminds me that it doesn't mean we're less of a human you know, but it just, there's some interesting cultural expectations that come with being a pastor and being married. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that you've really uh, well, helped would, me understand. I would offer it and, and feel free to edit this out of the podcast later, but <laughs> I would say I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to have a conversation with my daughter. She's in fourth grade mm-hmm. and the topic of human sexuality came up and we started mm-hmm. having conversations and about sex and, and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And, um, but anyway, we got around to, well, dad, are you ever going to have sex again? Which is like a pretty courageous uh, question by your daughter. You know, I thought it was a good question. You know, as a guy who appreciates questions, you can appreciate Mm -hmm. that one. Sure. And I said, well, sweet pea, not if I'm not married. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, does that kind of bother you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and I was like, no, I was like, sweet pea, I am, you know, I I was like, can I, I don't remember the last time I had sex, right? Mm -hmm. Six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. I was like, that has not made me uh, an incomplete person. Mm. If anything, I feel more complete, more whole, mm. more of who I am now than I, than I ever have. And mm. if the prospect of not having sex again, like that doesn't define who I am. Wow. Uh, so it was a, it was a pretty fun moment. I mean, not every dad gets the moment of, of yeah. kind of being that example to their daughter that like sex doesn't define you. And mm. it's a, it's a unique scenario that I, I wouldn't like wish on people, but it is, I'm I'm trying to steward it well. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, even hearing a lot of the difficult spaces that you, you know, I think about that. I love that picture you had of when, when you're on the ascent, everybody knows you, but when you're on the descent, you begin to know yourself. Hmm. And so what are some of the ways or what, what keeps you from throwing in the towel, um, knowing Hmm. how much pain is associated with being in ministry? Well, just so it doesn't sound too heroic, this was never my idea. Uh, (laughs) My my father was a Southern Baptist minister. And Mm. so my early intent was to love Jesus and stay as far away from the church as possible. Mm. Uh, That changed um, in my early, uh, well, late teens, early 20s. So somewhere along the way, um, I think it was Andy Crouch. I said at one point he was, he was quoting something from the French revolution and everything always sounds a whole lot smarter when Andy's saying it. Uh, <laughs> that is true. He, he may have even said it in French. Let's just be clear about this. So, he said, nothing changes without the individual, nothing lasts without the institution. And 
And that caught me because what I started to think about was not about the church that I wanted to go to. And, and again, just so this doesn't sound too like noble, when we started TNL back in 93, it was 100% about creating the church that I as an individual wanted to go to. It had no institutional desires at all. It was, I would say, almost 100% selfishly motivated. Like we just wanted a church that played the music that we liked had people speak that looked like us and sounded like us. But somewhere over the last 25 years, there's been a little maturing. And, and now I would offer, I am most interested in not throwing in the towel because I want to create the church that my daughter, you know, God willing and her interest based that she would take her children to someday. Right. I'm interested in creating the church that lasts. And so the, you know, the picture in my mind is the people who, you know, worked on cathedrals that never saw the completion of cathedrals. Yeah. yeah. And, and so if I throw in the towel, it's not just me throwing in the towel, right? It's me throwing in the towel for my daughter mm. and my grandchildren. What a vision. I mean that, yeah, I just was reading recently. Anthropologists say that cultures are wired towards one of two things, short-sighted thinking and long-sighted thinking. And that's, that's long-sighted thinking. Like that's for the long game, which I love. And yeah, I mean, there's a great documentary about Gaudi, um, the architect who originally designed La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And, you know, they've been working on that every day, every year for over a hundred years. And that cathedral isn't finished yet. And in many ways, you're kind of being Gaudi. You're starting this thing and which you're probably not going to see the end of it, but you're kind of celebrating that is what we're hearing. Yeah. And I feel like that's such a difficult space for us to be in as like Western Christians, because so much of what we think is the here and now and to think generationally, I feel like other than people who are thinking about earth care and, and ecology, I don't really know if there's a lot of other folks that are actually thinking very far into the future opposed to like the next two years before the election and things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's well, Andy, uh, again, just to, you know, patron saint of the podcast today, I guess. Andy <laughs> this podcast um, is brought to you by Andy Crouch. <laughs> uh, Andy, you know, says, you know, God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Right. So God identifies himself as a generational mm. God. That's a great um, point. Wow. Wow. What, uh, one of the things that, um, I've so appreciated and it stuck out to me in our conversations of the way in which you engage in practices. And I would call you a, a casual, um, a, per, a person who engages in casual liturgy, uh, maybe lowercase L in how you live your life. And I've always appreciated that. So I'm just curious. I mean, I, I love the way you journal. Um, you are a journaler. Sometimes you show pictures of your journals and what you're writing and things like that. But what are some of the anchoring practices in your life? We've in, been enjoying interviewing pastors on the Monday morning podcast, asking them, what do you specifically do? What are ridiculously practical ways in which you are cultivating a life that wants to be healthy and wants to be accessible to God? So what are some of those anchoring practices in your own life? Yeah. Well, just so we're clear, I think now, like I'm not even in lowercase liturgy, uh, we renamed TNL, right? So, uh, when we started this thing, we called it Tuesday night live. Um, we bought a three letter URL. You could do that in 93. So we kept the three letter URL TNL.org. Uh, but we have now called it the, the Tuesday night liturgy of the mm. sacred grace. Wow. Right? So Tuesday wow. night liturgy. 
It, it's cool. at least a, a bit better than the Tuesday Night Live. Let's say. Yeah. That. Well, you're getting yeah that the next level and, and yeah, we, Tuesday we Night Live. through a few. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So going back to your question, for me, the the rhythms of life and the practices have taken on a, a unique importance in my life over the last several years. I was, I think, drawn to the concept of spiritual disciplines. You know, you go back to Willard and Foster, and but. But maybe over the last five years, uh, this I- idea of a rule of life, of which I just finished this uh, brilliant book called God and My Everything by Ken Shikamatsu, um, obviously Rich Velotis uh, up in, in Queens, um, Glenn Packiam as well here uh, down at New Life in Colorado Springs. Like there's some guys who are thinking about this stuff really beautifully and communicating it really well. Um, there's a new book that I've got on pre-order called um, Our Common Rule. Um, once again, uh, Andy uh, and Praxis have recently created a rule of life uh, for Praxis, uh, redemptive entrepreneurship. So this rule of life is really where I've started to find that what's helpful is not just spiritual practices, but actually a way of arranging the habits of our day to bring us back into abiding in the deep love and joy of God. And so uh, the way that we've articulated that within our community is we talk about four quadrants, personal spiritual, relational, and vocational. And so we talk about personal is you and you, spiritual is you and God, relational is you and others, and then vocational is you and your work. And and what we've encouraged people to do is look at what are the practices in each of those domains of life that are helping you enjoy uh, the abiding love of God. And, And so the questions that I usually ask myself and others when we're talking about rule of life is where do you experience joy? And interestingly enough, currently the hardest question it feels like for most people to to answer is where do they find joy with you and you? Otherwise known as when do you enjoy your own company? Yeah. Um, So for me to to pull back the curtains a little bit of what my rule of life looks like, uh, there's some uh, practices that happen every day. Um, For me, every day starts... Uh, early and it starts with quiet and a candle and a cup of coffee and the wisdom of Jesus from the book of John. There's a Jesuit priest, Father Vince down at Sacred Heart that a couple years ago, I was on silent retreat with him and he gave us this practice and I've adopted it as mine uh, for the last several years. And it's 18 sayings of Jesus from the book of John that I read every morning. And it's something in between maybe a Lectio Divina and breath prayer. And I think I probably for a little while was caught up in like, oh, am I not doing like, do I need to do it more as breath prayer? Do I need to do it more as Lectio Divina? Do I need to do it? You know, whatever. And, and what I've recognized is what Father Vince said is what's important is that you give yourself to a text, that you give yourself to a practice and that you give yourself to a community. Wow. Say that again. Say that again, yeah, Jared. That's great. So, uh, give yourself to a text, give yourself to a practice, and give yourself to a community. Um, yeah, Father Vince is a saint, and, and actually I'm going, getting to go on retreat with him again next month, and uh, it's a gift you know, to learn from who's, a man who's in his uh, mid-80s at this point, who is actually uh, what they would call a Johanian disciple. So the text that he gave himself to over 50 years ago was John. 
So he's been studying the gospel of John for over 50 years. Wow. Wow. So his, his insights into the gospel, you know, according to John are, are just, uh, I mean, almost uncomprehensible or incomprehensible. Sorry. Um, so it's just beautiful. Anyway, so that's part of my practice. Part of my rule of life is that how every day starts. Other parts of my rule of life a uh, bit uh, have a bit more levity. My daughter and I, we make pizza every Monday night. <laughs> that's great. We, we figure that we're somewhere in the, let's see, probably 280 pizzas, you know, that we've made <laughs> wow. over, that's great. over the last five years, you know? So you know, we're, we kind of have this joke that like, will we stop when we hit a thousand and we then both kind of laugh and we're like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> but the, the reason that's part of our rule of life is it's tactile. Uh, there's a lot of laughter. Uh, it's not complicated. Uh, sing, single male can make a pizza, uh, you know, uh, that's, you know, and, and also there's a fair level of in, innovation and creativity that's allowed every week, you know, when you're making pizza too. So so we make pizza every Monday night and that's actually uh, something that's deeply life-giving and it reminds me of God's provision. It reminds me of the joy of being a father uh, as part of my rule of life. So um, other pieces uh, are trying to spend monthly days in silence and annual retreats in silence. Those are kind of in that spiritual quadrant. Um, having hobbies is actually really important kind of personally. What does that look like? And so photography for me is one, writing is one. Those are really into both things. Uh, going back to relational, uh, part of my rule of life last year was just the recognition that uh, the, ma the vast majority of people I spend time with are under 40. And so part of my rule of life last year is every time I met somebody that was over 40, I would say, can we go out to breakfast or lunch? Oh. So it was just like a default setting for a year, which was every time I meet somebody over 40, that there's any sort of relational connection with it all. I'm going to ask them if they can go out to, to breakfast. Well. What a great practice. Um, wow. And then vocationally, you know, the, uh, there's so much great stuff out there right now about like deep work and um, traction. And I mean, there's just brilliant stuff in there in, in business land and, and how to work well, no matter what kind of work you do. But for me, it came down to what are the unique things that I can do for our organization? And then how do I arrange my schedule uh, my weekly schedule to do those. So, um, I've created this kind of crazy schedule in which I only do meetings on certain days of the week. And I only, you know, do kind of deep work study each day of the week. Um, part of my rule of life is as a pastor, no matter how much kind of leadership responsibility I have, I still feel just really called to study regardless if I'm preaching or not. And so four hours a week, I study uh, on Tuesday mornings, eight to 12, all the screens are off, all the notifications are off. And it's just me and books in the basement. And it just reminds me like part of the reason I got in this was because I wanted to kind of dig in and, you know, using Father Vince's words, they're treasure text. So... I mean, Jared, just as you're talking, I mean, the idea of, gosh, there's so much we could unpack, but when you talked about lighting a candle, it actually reminds me, I was telling Doug before we started this conversation with the three of us here about how we shared a room and actually shared a bed together at Q Boston, uh, the Q conference that was held in Boston and the crazy circumstances around that. But I remember waking up early, there were four of us in that really small room and I looked over 
and you were journaling and you had a candle lit. And I thought, well, that's, that's different. That's, that's interesting. I wonder if he knows if the candle's on. Well, of course he did. You turned it on. You, you lit that. <laughs> I, I, um, I did. I turned on the candle. I turned <laughs> <it>. <laughs> so uh, briefly, tell us, tell us what's behind that. I mean, I know candles have been a part of the sort of liturgical history of the church, mm-hmm. more in a kind of a Catholic side of things. But why is that important to you in terms of lighting candles when it comes to your, your anchoring practices, your rule of life? Well, part of it is I'm up before the sun's up and uh, part of, it's really funny. We should definitely send this uh, podcast to Andy. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) I'll say Andy said, uh, you know, sometimes you want to remember that, that God is present um, without technology. And, And let's be clear, a candle is to some degree technology, right? It's whack and wick wax and wick. Um, but it, I, I spend my mornings technology free. So a candle provides the necessary light to read the 18 sayings of Jesus from John and write in my journal. So there's some level of practicality to it. The other part is what I've recognized is now I'm, I'm starting to light candles. And every time I go into a meeting, and bring a candle into the meeting room. And it reminds me that there's something alive. Most of our environments are pretty sterile at this point. And you can put in the fake plants or even a real plant, but there's something about fire that is, that it reminds you, right? There's a sense of the, the, the spirit of God present, right? In that flame, but there's also something there's oxygen and, and there's something for me, mystical. I would probably put myself into that category. You know, one of the things that um, you've got my mind thinking, even what you said a few minutes ago about this father Vince, I think was his name. Just what would it look like if I gave myself to a book and studied it for my lifetime? <laughs> I don't know if you're thinking that Doug, but I'm yeah. just wondering if I picked one, what would that be? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe well, it's picked for me by someone mm-hmm. else or just the spirit surfaces that in me, but wow. Yeah. I was just, I've been um, reading a book recently by um, Dr. Hall. Uh, it's called reading scripture with the church fathers. And I've been noticing how important it is that people enter into this text with this sacred longing to be transformed by. And I feel like so much of what I've experienced in in my life and even in seminary training and things like that is, you know, try to get everything you can out of this thing. Like let's squeeze it and Mm. see what we can get. But I feel like there's something so sacred about just sitting with the same book for time, you know, for years. Mm. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you one. Actually, let's call Andy. Andy can give us all a book to read for the rest. Yeah. We'll let Andy decide that that biblical book for all three of us. How about that? Well, so I, I've gone back and forth because the, because of father Vince's influence on me and, and, and I've thought about, you know, where does that fall with me? And, and for me, it's come down to the gospels. Uh, and I think by allowing myself to find myself there and unapologetically, I find myself just enraptured by, uh, the uniqueness of, of each one. You know, we're, we're teaching through Luke right now, uh, through Epiphany and Lent. And, and there's just some really beautiful stuff in Luke. The, the more that you dive in and dig in and, and to get to know, you know, this only non-Jewish writer in the whole new Testament. And, and, uh, 
as I started to unpack the fact that, that Luke most likely travels with Paul, you know, for upwards of two years, if not more. And then you go back and you actually look at the arc of Jesus and the Pharisees in Luke. And, and it is this highly contentious, escalating relationship that is like, just, you just know that where this thing is going to go. And then I think Luke is traveling with Paul, the one who identifies himself as a, as a, as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And all of a sudden, the way that you read Luke is like a, a slave who had been freed from the South, who was traveling with a former slave owner going around talking about, you know, the emancipation proclamation. Wow. Mm. What a beautiful image. Mm. Mm. Wow. Mm. So thinking about how this podcast reaches a lot of pastors on hopefully on Monday morning or in the space where they feel most depleted and kind of beat up. Um, what do you wish every pastor knew or was reminded of on Monday mornings? If you're beat up on Monday morning, you may need to have some long conversations with a mentor or a counselor. Because I would offer that although there are certain demands of Sunday, I do still believe that we are called to work from a place of rest. Mm. And I think figuring out your schedule so that you are not trying to get back to zero on Monday, <laughs> yeah. but that, that there is some sense of like, I, I work from a place of rest. I, I live out of a deep abiding sense of God's presence. Um, yeah, that, that whole idea of kind of the Jewish understanding of Sabbath and the Jewish understanding even of a day is really important. So that, that's kind of an, uh, on the, on an aside there, but to go back to your question, what I, what I wish everybody would know, um, if you haven't read the book, art of pastoring, uh, David Hansen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say like every pastor needs to know that the pastoral position again, goes back to maybe what I said at the very beginning of the podcast is it's so much about who you are and how you're coming to understand how God has made you and your uniqueness and, that he delights in you and that you're not called to be anybody like no one is, can be a pastor the way that you can, and you will not be a pastor like the way anybody else does. And so both like hold on to your uniqueness in that. And also recognize uh, what Eugene Peterson, I had the opportunity to be in a room with him several years ago with about a hundred pastors up in New York. And he simply said, you know, the pastoral position and the pastoral occupation, it's a humble, but honorable profession. And that landed with me and, and redeemed a lot of my own story, uh, redeemed a lot of the story of my childhood and, and family of origin and my father being a minister. And, and I think just the reality is like you are in an honorable, but it's a humble position. And, and so hold it carefully, hold it honorably. I, I have found more often than not, people on the outside of the church respect what I have chosen as an occupation, regardless of their faith tradition. That they they seem to, you know, say, "Well, it's it's an interesting thing. Like, good for you, you know." However, that goes. Um, but I, I think I, I was just thinking uh, this last weekend. I was away on a retreat with Gordon McDonald, 
who is now uh, in his 80s, is uh, the chancellor of Denver Seminary, and a handful of us had the opportunity to, to listen just to wisdom over 80 years of life and ministry. And he told his story about the people who had influenced him most in his life and his faith. And he got to the end of it and he said, well, what did you notice? And he, and he had picked nine people. And I said, well, none of them were pastors. And he kind of grinned. And, and so we had this conversation about, you know, it's actually a question that I ask people most often. Um, who has been the person who has had the most spiritual influence on your life? And rarely is that person a pastor. And, and I think pastors, I, I share all that to say, I hope that that brings you a sense of the levity of God's grace about your job, right? One of the prayers that we pray in the prayers of the people for leadership at, at our church is may they know the weight of their responsibility and the levity of your grace. And I think pastors need to hold the weight of their responsibility and the levity of God's grace and recognize that probably nine out of 10 people, if we were to ask them who is the most um, spiritually important or who has had the greatest spiritual influence on your life, it might not be you. And that's okay. Oh, if I'm around you for an hour or so, I at least hear this quote one or two times, but life is grace. All of life is great. So tell me why is, is that a Beekner quote? Yes. Yeah. So tell, tell me why that's so, what, why is that so important to you? As it goes, Frederick Beekner was the first person who I believed was telling the truth. Huh. I had uh, grown up in the church. I had listened to, I don't know, 20,000 sermons by the time I left home. And I never believed anybody was telling the truth. And when I read Beekner, I believed he was telling the truth. And so in his book, he writes in the last and final analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Which book is that from? I'm pretty sure it's telling secrets, but it might be the sacred journey, but it landed. And uh, I think what I came to believe about life was Beekner also says all theology at its heart is autobiography. So none of us believe anything about God that we haven't lived. And yet so many of us uh, have found ourselves maybe in this occupation and, and maybe really at the heart of us undecided about grace. And uh, that was definitely my story. You know, my story was I remembered a Tuesday night when I walked out after church and with tears in my eyes, like looked up and said, why is the person who I identify most with in scripture, the older brother between the older brother and the younger brother, the one that leaves home and the one that stays and always does the right thing. Um, and I, and I, you know, tears in my eyes. I was like, I wonder if I'll ever know what it means to need grace. Mm. And through a severe mercy, I have come to deeply understand the need for grace. And, mm. and so have then come to believe actually life itself is grace. Life itself is a gift. We have been gifted every breath, every day, every relationship, um, the opportunity to be married or single parent or not child. Um, we've been gifted this for those of us who hold these positions and occupations of, of pastorate. Like this is a gift. You did not earn this, right? All that we have, we have received from God. 
we brought nothing into this world, we'll take nothing out of it. And so for me, it's become a mantra that I, I hear, I see, I say often, and maybe too much information. It happens to be tattooed on my chest. Mm. So <laughs> it's uh, the words that I read every morning when I look in the mirror, the first thing. And it's the words that I read when I look in the mirror every night before I go to sleep, that life itself is grace. Mm. Wow. Liturgy of the skin. Love that. Well, Jared, thank you so much for just sharing your soul with us. Uh, I feel like this has been such a sacred space and I'm grateful for your willingness to share stories and to inspire and even to um, lead us towards uh, Jesus in this. And so thank you so much for this time. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate you. And um, I, I just wanted to ask if you could kind of uh, send send us out with a, with a benediction of sorts, mm-hmm. um, just a sentence or two of blessing for those listening. Absolutely. So the benediction that I have been praying most often this last year, uh, which somehow eluded me for 25 years in ministry, is known as the Gloria Patri which is glory be to the father and to the son and to the Holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and forever shall be world without end. Amen. an incredible interview. So grateful for Jared Mackey and the opportunity that we all had to listen in on a very sacred conversation. Um, one of the things that it reminded me of that there's a quote that I just heard recently from a friend that said, sacred things are really only ordinary things, but we bring them to the presence of Jesus. And I feel like so much of that conversation was really about ordinary things that were brought into the presence of Jesus. So I'm sure you had many different things that stuck with you. I want to leave us just with a couple questions that are from the time that we had with Jared Mackey. And one of the questions is this. Uh, he talked about you and you and you and God as the two places in which where we are trying to develop uh, health and vitality and our life with God. And so the, the question I want us to sit with is where are you experiencing joy with God And where are you experiencing joy with you? The second question is this. Um, Jared talked about his conversations with Father Vince. And Father Vince said something that has really been sticking with me. And he said, you need to give yourself to a text, give yourself to a practice, and give yourself to a community. And so I just want to ask the question and leave us with this. What text will you give yourself to this week? What practice will you give yourself to? And what community are you giving yourself to? Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor. We were really grateful for the feedback that we've already received and we're hungry for more. Also, if you have any questions or stories you'd like to share of ways that you're noticing God at work um, or hope that you would like to share with other pastors who are listening, we'd love to hear you. So please feel free to email us at mailbag at mondaymorningpastor.show. We really appreciate the community that's already been forming and we're looking forward to it forming even further. So pastors, may you experience joy this week. May you see God at work in things 
And may you yourself personally experience joy because of the way that you recognize your belovedness. We'll see you next Monday.